Hey everyone, it's Greg Stroud with Two Brain Media. On this week's episode, we talk to Kyle Ranke, CEO and founder of Proposify. We talk about Kyle's new book, Free Trials and Tribulations, along with learning more about Kyle's life experiences that have led him to become a business leader. Subscribe to Two Brain Radio to hear the very best ideas, tips, and topics to move you and your business closer to wealth. Two Brain Radio is brought to you by Two Brain Business. We make gyms profitable. We're going to bring you the very best tips, tactics, and interviews in the business world each week. To find out how we can help you create your perfect day, book a free call with a mentor at twobrainbusiness.com. We'd like to thank another one of our amazing partners, Level Method. As a CrossFit gym owner, I know retention is key to keeping my business going for years to come. Retention is not easy though. People want to see success and if you don't show them early, they'll find a place that does. This is where Level Method comes in. With Level Method, you are now able to guide your members through an amazing structure that will give them a path to success. Once you have success, you instantly have motivation for them to continue, which will now be delivered to your members. Start systemizing the creation of powerful moments for your members today. Go to levelmethod.com to book a free call. Well, Rocky, welcome to Two Brain Radio. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, man, it's it's a real pleasure. And you know, I got to meet you in person long before this book came out. You even mentioned back then that the book was coming. So I was anticipating it. It was even better than I'd hoped. Oh, and wow. so today we're going to be talking about Kyle's book, Free Trials and Tribulations. I've got my my well-thumbed and, and often folded copy right here. But Kyle, you know, the listeners would love to hear your story first. So go ahead and I'll let you tell it. Sure. Uh, goes back a while. So I'll just kind of give the, the broad overview, I guess. Uh, I run a company today called Proposify, which is a SaaS business um, that helps thousands of teams write proposals and write, send, and track. So the kind of the whole end-to-end process of that. About 70 people were based out of Halifax, Nova Scotia, and we've been on this ride now for about five years. Um, but prior to that, I used to run a web design agency called Headspace, not the meditation app, which people often get confused by, just a really good name. Did that for about five years. That was the first business that I had started. Uh, did, a, did that when I was 24. I actually met my business partner, Kevin, who's 20 years my senior, and we're still together today running Proposify. So that's kind of a, a, a brief work history of where I was at graphic designer by trade, went to college for that. Okay. So we're going to get to the uh, how to build a business while getting punched in the mouth part later. But in the book, you say like, you're not a born hustler. So why did you want to start a business in the first place? Yeah. You know, the the idea of sales always really scared me, which is kind of uh, a little bit ironic running a SaaS business that helps sales teams with sales. Um, and doing a lot of speaking about sales, you know, I was never kind of the, the hustle, the scrappy hustler in the sense of like the ones slamming cold calls and going and knocking on doors. I was always a little bit more shy than that, you know, but like, I wasn't the kid. Like if you ever hear of Gary Vee talking about this stuff, he's like, when I was six, I was, you know, stealing the neighbor's flowers and selling it back to them and getting my kid, you know, other kids in the neighborhood to sell lemonade for me. And that was sort of the Gary Vee thing. That was never me. I was kind of like the quiet artsy kid drawing. So the idea of become, to become an entrepreneur just happened kind of organically in my 20s when I was a graphic designer at, a, at an agency. And I just, I have to thank the bad bosses that I had. There were these, these guys running these agencies, really uninspiring. Didn't, you know, we had no idea what was going on. What, was the, what were we all trying to do? Maybe that was the millennial in me, but it sort of just inspired me. Like, I can do this. I can, like, they're just going and finding somebody, you know, who has a web contract or whatever. And I'm the one doing the work. 
let's just cut out the middleman and I'll go out and find the web contract and, and do it. Right. So that was kind of where it started, just the freelance lifestyle, living life on my own terms, being able to work from home, choose my contracts. That was really what appealed to me. And in order to get that, I had to get out and uh, kind of hit the pavement and find clients. What, what was that first transition like for you when you, know, you were working for an agency and then you decided, I'm going to go out on my own and have my own agency? It was terrifying. Now, it started as a freelance, so it was a little easier. It wasn't like I was going and like renting office space and hiring people. But yeah, it was always really scary. I found that because I wasn't as, I didn't think I was a good salesman, but I knew that I was good at what I did. I knew that I could, that clients were happy with my work. And I knew that I was professional in the way that I dealt with them. So because of that, it was actually all I needed to get was a couple of contracts, make those clients really happy, and then they would refer other people to me. And eventually it was kind of the reputation of my local area that was sustaining me. I kind of went out the first month and just, you know, went to conferences and handed out business cards, got a couple of jobs. And then from then on, as a freelancer, I didn't actually have to do any more sales. They just kind of came to me that way. So I was like, well, that's a lot easier. <laughs> it's a lot easier to do that than to try to have to sell something. It's interesting that you bring that up and, and listeners are going to hear later on why I think that you got a lot of sales training from a very early age. But so how, how did the process go then from owning Headspace to you know, another business and now into Proposify? Yeah, the agency was, uh, was a massive lesson over the course of five years, many lessons really of what not to do, how not to run a business. And I learned the hard way, you know, a lot of different things from how to manage a team and inspire them and motivate them and, and how to, you know, how to go out and sell larger contracts and everything about op- owning and operating a business. Like I, I think that I failed miserably at it, but I'm also grateful to have had those lessons because they helped me um, succeed with Proposify. The transition between the two was really ugly and really, uh, messy. Essentially what happened was we started getting into building SaaS products internally in the agency, mainly because we, we hated running an agency. We hated trying to sell uh, one-off services. And Kevin, my business partner actually came from a product background. He had, uh, he had actually uh, sold coffee back in the nineties through e-commerce. He had Manatee coffee in Florida, which he ran. And yeah, we started getting into the product stuff mainly as a way to sort of build some kind of recurring revenue. But we always, we had, you know, these different harebrained ideas for, for different products. We never really took the lean startup approach, approach and went out and validated them properly. So we just kind of spun up different products, realized it wasn't a market, moved on to the next. And then I remembered about this old idea that I had back in maybe 2006 for proposal software. When I was working at agencies and then going out on my own, we always had to write proposals. And I thought, well, this is this is a huge headache. Wouldn't it be easier if there was kind of like a base camp type system to manage all your proposals? Just sort of sat on that idea for years. And then fast forward to 2011, 2012, we're like, what product should we do next? Well, let's dust off this old idea and give it a try. Ended up getting it into some people's hands, even in a very early stage. And even though our product sucked, the feedback I always got about the problem was, oh my God, I hate writing proposals. I have to do it every day or, or every month. It's the worst part of my job. If you can build anything that will make that easier, we'll pay you money. So that was sort of like the first indication that we were on the right track and we were kind of moving towards something. 
the app, you know, getting it launched and then selling off the agency and going full-time into it was, was a long and arduous process, but we, we finally got there. I think a lot of entrepreneurs maybe have that blank slate fantasy of if I could start all over with a brand new company, knowing what I did now, here's what I would do. But the reality is like, it's very hard to kind of shut one company down and ramp up another. So how did you work through that process of focusing on Proposify and, you know, taking your foot off first base like you had with Headspace? Yeah. You know, it was, I think there's always a bit of a leap of faith with any businesses in there, right? You try to get enough validation to you know, go, okay, well, there's a market, there's, you know, we've got some good, um, you know, customer feedback, like it all makes sense. But at some point there is a bit of that, like jump off the cliff and hope you land on your feet. So I think we were there with Proposify. We were never really sure it was going to take off. There was even periods where I really didn't think there was any, you know, uh, any market there. There wasn't even really competitors at the time. So you kind of, that was a bit of a scary thought of like, wow, nobody else is doing this, or maybe only one other company is doing this. How big is the problem? We are incredibly um, fortunate with our timing because the whole proposal software industry really took off in the last couple of years and there's a lot of competitors now. But it was far from a sure bet. I think actually what really helped us in a, in a sick sense was the fact that our agency business wasn't doing well. So it was the only, it was kind of like, well, we can stay stuck in this, you know, shitty business that we're losing money all the time and, and completely stressed, or we can try something new. Maybe we'll be in the same spot, but at least it's, it's different. At least we can kind of start fresh and, and not have all the baggage from that other uh, business. So I think... You know, the process of getting it sold. And when I say sold, it's with double quotes, right? It's, we basically got rid of it. We got it into somebody else's hands. We didn't make a cent off of it. If anything, we lost money in the transaction. So, but it was really just the act of like, okay, we need to file that away, start a new chapter and and move forward. And luckily after six months of doing it full time, we started to see significant traction. You know, one thing that, that impressed me, from the start about you, Kyle, is like your ability to shoulder risk and just appear completely unfazed. And we met either in Toronto or San Francisco with the Martell Group. And I think at that time, Proposal wasn't even profitable yet, but you were just completely calm about it. Where does that come from? Uh, Well, I'll say when when I think we talked when we met and not profitable, it was really because we raised money. So we had we did have cash in the bank, but you know, we're currently running at a loss, which all all startups who raise capital do that. They they spend ahead of revenue. Um, right. that's what we use the capital for. But yeah, risk tolerance, I think there is a certain amount of risk tolerance that I have or just maybe an ability to to stay calm in in stressful situations. I don't really know where that comes from. I mean I, Certainly as, as a child, I had to, in a lot of ways, hold in my feelings. I had to kind of internalize that stress and just sort of push through it. And so it could have come from that. You know, I, you weren't, I wasn't really allowed outbursts as a child. You know what I mean? Whenever you, I saw TV shows where a kid was like, I hate you, dad. I was like, oh my God, I would have got my you know, head knocked off if I had tried that. So they could come from that, just sort of like just being able to, to bear down when, when hard times come. Let, let, let's get into that now, Kyle. So tell me about your childhood and how that has prepared you for entrepreneurship. Because, you know, part of what makes free trials and tribulations so interesting is your entire story, starting from when you were a little kid and learning, leading up to age 30. Yeah. So I was raised, um, 
was raised by my parents as Jehovah's Witnesses. They uh, they converted back in the seventies when they were when they were still young young adults themselves in their twenties, and so you know that to me it, it it seemed mostly normal growing up that way. I mean, it's it's hard to be a, a witness kid because there's a lot of stuff you can't do, celebrating birthdays, you know, hanging out with kids at school like after school going to their house like there's just a lot of participating in sports there's just a lot it's a very very strict upbringing for the most part but you're also kind of taught that you're this kind of weird but like your group is the only safe one everybody around you you and, and all of us we're all they're all worldly people and and armageddon is going to come any minute and destroy them all so you have to try to save as many as you can so that's kind of a weird way to <laughs> weird way to grow up i refer to it as a doomsday uh, cult which some people think is, is a bit hyperbole but but i think it's it's close to the truth okay so what that led to though and you know this is actually a recurring theme in the book is like not just here's this this hard thing that i went through but also like here's how it's helped me down the road and i was surprised when you said that you weren't naturally an outgoing kid because in the book you're telling stories about as a kid knocking on doors to talk about religion yeah how did that go? Well, you know, this is the thing is when you're, when you're raised as Jehovah's Witness, knocking on doors and preaching is, is, um, is expected, right? You're, you don't really, you don't have a choice. So you either have to, you either have to just figure out how to do it. And, and I mean, this is the thing a lot of people don't realize, but all witnesses is that when, when you get, when, when your door is knocked on on Saturday morning, person on the other end probably doesn't want to be there any more than you don't want to have them there they all think that they're they're there you know with zeal and vigor trying to save their soul and that is a that is a very small amount the majority are like this is what i have to do they count their hours and have to submit them at the end of the month it's like a sales quota so you kind of you're praying that the other person doesn't answer and you can just mark them as, as not at home and move on to the next one but then if they do show up to the door you're like oh crap now i have to say something so then you have to go back to your training and use your rehearsed presentation and, you know, overcoming objections. And there's a lot of like kind of overall sales training that you go through as a Jehovah's Witness to be able to like create rapport with the other person, try to listen and understand their needs. All sounds a lot like sales training. So before I get to uh, the sales training and how it's benefited you, how often were those, you know, sales pitches on the porch successful? Oh, very, very rarely. I mean, okay. Generally, the, the way it goes as a Jehovah's Witness is when you do the door-to-door, you know, probably 70% of people won't answer the door. They're not home. Then of the few that you get, probably, you know, 90% will say not interested, close the door. A couple will yell at you. And then, like, out of the rest of them, they'll usually take magazines. That's kind of, like, the thing that people do because they think that's what gets rid of you is they go, okay, yeah, sure, I'll take your watchtower and wait. Thank you. But what they don't realize is you're inviting them back. As soon as you do that, you're now a lead. You know, they don't call them leads, but you're, they're basically, oh, I placed some magazines. I'm going to write their, their name and their house number. And now I'm going to come back in a week and try to give them the next set of magazines and then try to develop that into a Bible study. And then if they're on a Bible study, I'll start bringing them to meetings. It's a very, very long sales cycle, very long road to conversion. But actually, at least when I was a kid in the 90s and the internet wasn't as um, prevalent with information, it was, you know, that is that is how new witnesses were created other than just being bred and <laughs> raised up. Right. Okay, so you've done an amazing job already of, you know, sharing how that process is a lot like lead generation and cultivation and nurture. So how 
has that prepared you for what you do today? Well, I mean, I, I like to share that even though overall my experience in that religion and the process of leaving it was an you know, incredibly negative experience, although generally shaped who I am. So I can't, uh, I can't discount that. I think right. that the greatest things about it was when I was a kid, and unfortunately they don't have this anymore from what I've learned from those inside is they used to have weekly public speaking training where you, you know, you would get a talk slip every, maybe every month. That would be your talk you have to work on. You, you do the research, you practice it, and then you go up, you deliver it to the congregation, usually five minutes. And then as you kind of get more experience, you give longer talks. And then literally like an adult or an elder or somebody on stage would grade you afterwards in front of the audience. They'd be like, well, Kyle, that was a really good job on the talk. Notice that you're, you know, you're pausing. You didn't pause quite enough. You were kind of rushing a little bit there. Like they would actually critique your performance Wow, on stage in front of everybody. So, you know, dealing, there was a lot of like lessons, I guess, on, on being humble. You had like, that was one of the main things as a Jehovah's Witness is you have to be humble. You have to, you know, basically take it. You have to take any and all kinds of abuse. Now realizing later on why that, why they, encourage these traits and you're much more obedient and willing to follow the rules and not question authority. But I digress a little bit. This, the public speaking training was very effective and it helped me even today being able to give presentations. Um, and I think it's a shame that uh, kids grow, growing up Jehovah's Witnesses now don't have that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's one thing that's really missing from our schools, at least in Canada, um, that you'll find when your kids are a bit older is there's no public speaking training at all. And so, you know, I think that the best is probably somewhere in the middle, but did that, did those skills directly help you when it came time to raise money for Proposify? What was that process like? Yeah. I mean, I I think, I think when it came time to raise money, it was probably more so just uh, being in business for for quite a few years that, Hmm. that helped that. Um, you know, and to be perfectly honest, I think my, uh, my business partner is the, the generally the leading force behind raises. So I can't take credit. You know, it's very similar to our uh, relationship with that headspace when it came to sales was Kevin was much more the opener. And I was the closer. Kevin was great at building and nurturing the relationship until it got to a point where, okay, now you have to present the plan or present the contract and then get it signed. And it worked very, very similar to our fundraising efforts where Kevin would develop all the relationships with VCs and different investors and show them our numbers and our pitch decks, but then actually, you know, hop on the plane and go in a pitch and it would be us together. and We would do that. Hmm. So the presentation skills for sure uh, probably helped. Although we haven't been super successful with raising money as, as much as others have. So I, I don't know how, uh, how great I am to be able to offer advice there. That's okay. I mean, you know, what I guess I was getting to is that your first round came from somebody that you'd made a connection with another way, right? Well, maybe just tell us that story to start. Oh, that was the raising the first round for Proposify? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when we were running Headspace, uh, there's a VC group in the city that I'm in, in Halifax, called Innovacore. And uh, we had actually pitched them on raising a seed round back when we were running Headspace and they turned us down. Now a year passed and we had come out with our MVP, got some traction, got some feedback, not a lot, but you know, I think we were at maybe 10, 10 customers or something like that paying 20 bucks a month. So very, very small amount of traction, but we had done it. We had put something out there mm-hmm. and then we were at the getting towards the tail end of getting out of uh, the agency business. I signed up 
one month to a pitch competition at the local kind of startup group called Volta, just to kind of pitch, you know, more or less get out and practice, you know. And uh, at that pitch competition, uh, ended up winning the competition. And uh, that same guy from an open course saw what we were doing and was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, you guys have come a long way and, and we should definitely talk. So that was sort of the beginning of just getting in the door with them. And then ultimately they said yes when we pitched the board on, on what we were doing. You know, there's really, I think, two valuable lessons there. And the first is that just because someone says no once doesn't mean it's a no forever. But, you know, the point that I was trying to reach here, I guess, would be it never hurts to go out and make more connections. How has that helped you, you know, grow Proposify? Well, it's it's funny because a lot of our members of our leadership team, uh, two in particular that that come to mind, uh, Ricky, our head of product, Jen uh, of communications, you know, I have known them for 10 years. We actually met before I even started Headspace. Hmm. the agency so i mean it's been a long long relationship and now they're they're you know members of the leadership team at proposify so i found that as as you kind of go about your being in business or being employed somewhere if that's you know if that's where you're at is it, look at everybody as a potential lifelong connection you know people that you really click with and people that you um, work well together you know you could be working at their company or they could be working at your company in 20 years. You have no idea. So the more of those relationships you foster and create and, and also prune, you know, the people that are adding value or you don't click with, or, you know, just basically being able to, I, I don't, I don't actually believe that you have to be friends with everybody and you have to, you know, not burn a bridge. I think sometimes it's great to burn a bridge, you know, just know who you work well with and, and enjoy their company and don't, don't spend time with, with people who, kind of energy drains on you can you can you give us an example of you know somebody that you've pruned maybe a client maybe a staff person yeah i mean both of those you know hard to give out examples i guess with, with staff but i mean that happens all week of right, course right you know you you always have the best of intentions when you hire somebody and and over the course of time you sort of figure out they're either not a cultural fit or they just don't have the, the skills to that you thought that they had um, and you've got to let them go. And that's always hard. Sometimes you, you part on good terms and other times, you know, we had an employee who, um, you know, the, the relationship was somewhat acrimonious as she left and ended up filing complaints and kind of going the legal route to, to try to get back at us. So that was, that was unfortunate, but I mean, that stuff happens. We always encourage, um, you know, our staff, like if you've got a, a customer who's just unreasonable rude, hangs up on you, swears at you, um, you know, just doesn't want to, I always think like a relationship in business, it has to be equal exchange of value. So if you're providing a service, you're offering them value, but if they don't want to pay you or they don't want to live up to their end, then it's not an equal transaction. So that's sort of the barometer for just fire them, you know, and, and it's, you'd be amazed how many times an employee will think that the customer's always, always right. And you always have to say yes. And you always, the ultimate goal is to keep the client. So when I would say, well, just fire them, just get rid of them. So I was like, well, really? You can do that? <laughs> but it's important. It is. And, you know, you're a really great connector. So I'm going to bet that, you know, maybe you've had a friend who worked for you or a friend who was an early client. And then you realize that, you know, while they were maybe a great friend, they were not a good fit for your business. How do you recommend people fire those clients? Yeah, when they're friends. You know, 
I've always been of the mind that you can certainly be going to business with friends and, and I've had, I've had pretty good success with it, but they can't, the, the person on the other end cannot look at it as uh, what's the word, you know, when you just hire your friends and family because they're friends and family. Oh, nepotism. Nepotism. Yeah. Like they have to know that, okay, we might be friends and we might be able to like go play Ricky and I play racquetball after work sometimes and, you know, we're very close friends. We were best men at each other's uh, weddings last year, but there's still a, you have to separate the business side of it. So when he comes to work, he comes at it with all of his energy, um, wants to be critiqued, you know, like it's, it's actually a boss employee relationship. He's able to do that. He's able to separate that. Mm. But I think when you hire your friends, you have to be sure that they're, they're not just looking at you to give them a free pass to your buddies. So how do you, what's, what's the first conversation when they're hired then? I mean, I've really struggled with this, so I hope you don't mind me following this question up a little more. Yeah. The, the questions you ask is, I, I mean, I think generally the from people that I'm friends with, it sort of doesn't need to be said, although maybe, maybe it does that, you know, we're, we're entering into a contract here. Like, mm. you know, you have to look at it with the same expectations that you would go into business with anybody, which is you have to live up to your end and I have to live up to my end. You know, and that means that sometimes you're going to fight, which I actually think it's great if you're friends, if you can have a good work fight, um, that's how you get the best results. You know, you argue, you, and, and oftentimes because they're your friends, they're more willing to challenge, which is a great thing. Sometimes if it's somebody who it's like, they just met you, they're a brand new employee, it takes them a lot of time to feel comfortable with challenging the boss because they're used to environments where challenging equals getting fired. Right. And, you know, that has come up um, recently too. But, you know, one of the most interesting parts of the book for me was you're mostly writing about SaaS business and software and stuff, but you have some really great advice for service-based businesses too. And that's who mostly listens to this podcast, owners of gyms and hair salons and attorneys. And one of the things that you said in the book was that a service business can be lucrative for the founder if you go narrow and deep. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, before you hit record, we were talking about websites. And I think this is a, a you know, good lesson for all these different types of businesses, gyms, and hair salons. It's, you know, in the web design business, it's gotten very, very hard over the last decade because it, it becomes more and more of a commoditized service. So anybody can go and sign up to Wix or Squarespace or any of these do-it-yourself website builders, use a WordPress theme. And it's generally fairly fast and easy to get a really good looking website up and running. So the mistake that I made with at Headspace was we, we, we didn't see ahead and we didn't, you know, we focused on where the market was going. We kind of buried our head in the sand and just said, nope, it's going to just the same thing Blockbuster would have done with Netflix, right? Like they bury their head in the sand. Nope. People are always going to come and show up at the store and want to rent their DVDs and pay their late fees. And they just refuse to accept, you know, the reality of where things were going. And we kind of did the same thing on a, on a smaller scale. You know, people are still going to, you're going to be able to get a mom and pop to pay you 10K for a website. There are certainly people who will pay 10K and 100K and a million dollars for a website, but they're probably not a mom and pop. So we didn't see that coming. Now, the way that agencies are, the really good ones are able to do it now is they go super narrow and deep. So I use the example in the book of a local agency who kind of was our contemporaries at the time, and they're still running 100 plus person agency, very successful. Uh, and profitable. And what they did was they just said, we only do traveling tours and websites. We help big brands, big, you know, travel brands increase their bookings online. And that's all their marketing, all their sales efforts, 100% focused on big cruise lines and all these 
you know, types of tourism and travel companies. If you're the best in the world at something, then people will seek you from outside. They'll want to work with the best. I, always use, I like to, to use the example of a photographer. If you run an agency and you get the Corvette account and you're going to do all the advertising for, uh, you know, for Corvette or for Jaguar or something like that, and you have to hire a photographer to do that, are you going to hire the photographer who does weddings and portraits and food shots? Or are you going to hire the, the photographer that, that does luxury cars? That's all they do. They're the best at it. Of course, you hire the, hire the specialist. For gyms and, and, and uh, hair salons, even though I don't know a lot about those specific businesses, the same thing can happen at a local level. Because that's usually, I think, where, gym, where those types of businesses are competing is for local business, is they can be the best at X niche. Like, you, you know, you're... You know a lot about the CrossFit business, right? Like that's yeah. especially so. That's I guess what I mean by going narrow and focus okay. on. So I think a lot of people understand that concept logically. I think what what maybe ties them up is this notion that it's a zero sum niche. That for me to get a new client, I have to take a client away from you. But one of the first things that you said on this podcast was um, there are other proposal softwares out there now, and and that's growing for everybody. So is it a case of just broader awareness that proposal software exists is benefiting everyone or is it something else? No, I think that's a great point. You know, um, even though there is more competition, you know, obviously that puts pressure on us to, to be even more focused and even more uh, specific in our messaging because we're not the proposal software for everyone. For people who, for, for instance, care a lot about the design of their documents and want total control over the customization of their documents, where we can totally compete in that space. Not every piece of proposal software is like that. Some of them, you know, you just upload your Word docs and you don't care if they look good. And it's just all about the automation. For others, it's the simplicity. It's like super easy. You just type in a box, no training required. We can't compete in that space. So just kind of knowing where you fit in that space. But yeah, overall proposal software, knowledge of it has grown in recent years. And I think it's the same thing with any business. My wife is a subscriber to five different gyms in our, in our hometown. You know, those gyms might look at each other like they're competition, but maybe, you know, for certain customers, they're just, you know, Oh, well, if I want to do CrossFit on this day, then I'll be a member of this gym. But you know, when I want, when I want to do hot yoga or Pilates, I go to this gym. I don't know if that person makes sense. I obviously don't know what I'm talking about. No, that makes perfect sense. And you know what, that's, that's something that I actually talked about in my first book back in 2012 was that that was where the market was going to go to that, that I thought CrossFit was going to be one of five or six choices that made up your entire exercise portrait. Uh, So how did you determine where you fit in that niche though, Kyle? Um, I think a lot of it is where, know where you're strong at already. I think it takes a certain amount of self-awareness both Hmm. as a person and as a company to go like, what are we already really good at? What are, what are our best clients who are our best clients rather? Um, because if, if we want to be more specific and have more of a focus as a company, we have to know who are, who are we already making happy? If we're trying to go after, you know, huge enterprise clients, but our best clients that are super profitable are, you know, in the 200 uh, employee range. Well, you know, why are we going after over here when we're already serving this very, very well? Um, and also, you know, we just, Maybe because I have a design background, I always wanted a proposal software that was very customizable and you could just brand it to look like exactly like your InDesign file. That was important to me and I assumed it would be for other people. Not every customer cares about that. Hmm. Um, but the ones that do would use our software, not someone else's. So I think it's just a lot of uh, reflect, self-reflection and going, where are we already strong? 
let's double down on that rather than trying to go over here and do something we're clearly not um, cut out for. And, and how often do you talk to these, you know, these best clients, you know, maybe you're familiar with Mike Michalowicz's pumpkin plan. No, no. Okay. So his, his idea is that you identify your top three to five best clients first by the revenue that they drive and second by uh, how you feel when you're serving them, you know, do they fill you with energy? And um, so you know, if you, if you know who your best clients are and you're very focused on serving them better, how often are you asking them about how you can improve your service or what you should be working on next? Yeah, you know, I, I used to do it a lot more. I used to have conversations with virtually every single customer who signed hmm. up. Of course, the company scale and, you know, now we're at about 8,000 customers. That becomes a lot, a lot harder to do. So we kind of have to <laughs> that scale. But, you know, customer development is a big core part of who we are. So everyone from, you know, just having conversations with customer success and support and see and, and just reading the conversations they're having and listen and seeing what the customers are saying, listening in on uh, phone calls that salespeople are making. There's a lot of ways to, at scale, I think, to collectively pull information and just know as a group, okay, we know we're, you know, doing really well with these franchise groups, for instance, but maybe not with um, companies that need CPQ or all of their Salespeople are salespeople are in the field with iPads, for instance. We know that if that's if that's their um, their current reality, they're probably not going to be super happy with our service. Now, maybe that's an area we can get better, but just kind of knowing where you play by talking to your customers, or rather, your employees who do talk to your customers. Okay, man, that, I think that's great advice. So, last question: What's your actual role at Proposify now? Like, how do you spend your day? You know, I struggled with this, I think, a couple of years ago, and that was what impelled me to reach out to uh, Dan Martell and get his coaching because I didn't know what I did anymore. I, I was used to being in the trenches, you know, designing and, and, and having customer uh, support conversations and really like doing the work. Get Transitioning out of that and trying to build a company was a whole was an area I'd never really known what to do. Hmm. Um, so I've gotten a lot of help from that group that, that we were a part of, uh, that I'm still a part of. And so, you know, I think the advice that Dan Martell gives us about like setting the vision and building the team and keeping money in the bank are the three primary roles of a CEO. I try to, I try to stay focused on that stuff. And, and I think that I'm in a really good position where Kevin as a co-founder is really good at the money part. So I don't, that's an area that I'm kind of weak in is like the operational working with the accountants, kind of knowing where we're at financially, he, he owns that. So it really gives me a lot of freedom to focus on vision and team building, which is the stuff that I actually really enjoy is, you know, sitting with a product team or sitting with the head of, you know, customer success and just talking about like, where are we going? Where's the product going? Where are the opportunities? Where should we be doubling down on? Um, and then running the weekly sync meetings. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of what I do every day. Oh, that's really cool, man. Well, Kyle, you know, my favorite thing about free trials and tribulations is that even though there are a lot of hardships that you've gone through, it, it's really, really obvious how surviving those things has separated you as an amazing entrepreneur and benefited you later in life. So thanks for giving me an hour and thanks for this book. Oh, thank you, Chris. A lot of fun. Hey, everyone. Chris Cooper here. I'm really thrilled to see you this year in June in Chicago at the 2019 Two Brain Summit. Every year we have two separate speaking tracks. There's one for you, the business owner, and there's one for coaches that will help them make better, longer, more meaningful careers under the umbrella of your business. This year we've got some pretty amazing topics like the client success manager, how to change your life, 
organizational culture, the business owner's life cycle, how to have breaks, how to have vacations, how to help your marriage survive owning a business, motivation and leadership, how to convert more clients, how to create a GM position that runs your gym for you and leaves you free to grow your business, uh, how to start a business owner's group in your community and more. The point here is to do the right thing that will help gym owners create better businesses that will last them for the long term, get them to tinker phase, help them be more successful, create meaningful careers with their coaches, and give their clients a meaningful path to long-term health. We only do one big seminar every year, and that's the Two Brain Summit. And the reason that we do that is because a big part of the benefit is getting the Two Brain community together and, and welcoming strangers into our midst and showing them how amazing gym ownership really can be. We'll have a link to the Two Brain Summit, including a full list of all speakers and topics on both the owners and the coaches side in the show notes. I really hope to see you there. As always, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We greatly appreciate you and everyone that has subscribed to us. If you haven't done that, please make sure you do. Drop a like to the episode, share with a friend, and if you haven't already, please write us a review and rate us on how, what you think. If you hated it, let us know. If you loved it, even better. See you guys later.